Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, this is Davina. Hello, Davina, two bears. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. Um, and I'm so delighted that you're, you're part of, of this series. How are you today? I'm doing good, thank you. Where do I find you? Uh, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the School for Advanced Research. Is that where you teach? Um, I actually have a fellowship here. It's called the Anne Ray Fellowship. And, and what does that fellowship entail, and how is it working f to have a fellowship in the midst of this pandemic? Uh, the fellowship is a, a writing uh, fellowship for uh, Native Americans. So I'm working on um, publishing a book chapter based on my research and also a journal article for Eva Journal, and um, also starting... Um, to research for transforming my um, dissertation into a book. Right. So I'm starting that project as well. So I, But I've been here since September, and and my fellowship ends at the end of May this, this month. So it's been a wonderful place. It's a beautiful environment, and I really got made many friends here with the other uh, scholars. I'm not just the only scholar here. There was Four other scholars, and there's there was also um, three Native American artists that were here as well, and so it's been a really beautiful place to just think and write. And I feel really lucky to be here right now during the pandemic. Has the pandemic in in any way affected your daily life? Uh, it 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 has. I mean, we I. Mostly the way it's affected us is that I, I, mean, I live with my two daughters. They're young adults, and so we've just been restricted, and we don't go out at all like we used to. Um, you know, Santa Fe is a beautiful place, and there are many nice restaurants, and we just haven't been able to go out, and it's such beautiful spring weather. Uh, I guess the way most people are going outside is taking walks or hiking or biking. So we've definitely been taking advantage of those kinds of outdoor activities. But as far as like shopping or going to restaurants or going to the movies or, you know, going to the park, those are closed except for the hiking trails. So we, we, it, it, it is a very beautiful place to be in social, social, socially isolating so um i can i can say that um that much for it and also i have a lot of family in arizona and i haven't been able to visit them because you know they're also practicing so social isolation right can you can you start out maybe by telling us a little bit about the nature of your your research and perhaps first by describing richard henry pratt and the Federal Indian Boarding School System, which I know is very important in your research. 
Yeah, uh, he was the person that um, had the idea of in establishing an Indian boarding school for Native American children in the late 1800s. So he established the first Indian boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And his ideas were based on his experience uh, overseeing Native American prisoners at uh, Fort Augustine in um, Florida. So, or Fort Marion, I'm sorry. And so he um, had experience with these uh, Native American prisoners of war. And I think they were from um, Plains Indians tribe. And he... um, what he did with them was that he taught them English and also um, how to, you know, he taught them English and how to read and write and also how um, to Christianity. Christianity was a big part as well of the, um, the things that he was trying to teach these prisoners and and he saw that this could be applied to Native American children and but he felt that it was very important that uh, children be separated from their families otherwise they wouldn't be able to learn um, learn English but you know it was the government's way of um, really it the government endorsed his idea and it was their way of um, forcing Native American tribal groups to be, um, I guess. I mean, he has such an, adhered, ex- such an extraordinary sentence. He has such an extraordinary sentence about, about uh, the school where he says, kill the Indian, save the man. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole institution was to just, you know, not, allow the children to connect with anything, any of their culture or identity. And the government did this as a way to keep tribes in check that they were warring with. So, you know, they used the, the children um, as a way um, to, to ensure that tribes, you know, don't continue to war with the um, United States and also so that they could give up more of their land. And, they, and that's, you know, how they use the children. Um, and, and parents, you know, they, they didn't have any choice. A lot of um, the children were just taken from them. And even if they protested, you know, the government still took the children from them. And um, this is this idea after the Carlisle Indian School, it spread across the country. So there were many other boarding schools that were built uh, all over the country. And and um, the Navajo Reservation had nine federal Indian boarding schools built on the on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona and um, New Mexico. So, um, yeah, he he many many children died at, um, at more than a hundred children died, almost probably two hundred uh, at the Carlisle Indian School because they there you know it was a place that was very, very difficult for children to survive in because, you know, they were, of course, they were lonely. They, they didn't have their family. They, they, they stripped them of their, their culture, their, everything that they were familiar with. And, you know, there was no one taking care of these children that other than the, you know, the white 
staff or teachers that were there. So it was um, many children died at that school. You, you, your focus, as I understand it, is on a particular boarding school, the Loop Boarding School. And I know it has a pers- personal significance for you given your family story. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about about that research and also what you think its purpose was. The Loop School? Yes. Yeah, well, the, the, these schools, um, the, the government, the United States signed a treaty with the Navajo Nation after they forcefully um, rounded up the Navajo people in the 1860s and they placed them at Fort Sumner in New Mexico. And there, again, many Navajo people died in route and died at, the, at Fort Sumner and, at, and they were imprisoned there for four years. And they were set to be sent to Oklahoma um, Indian t- Territory and the leaders of the Navajo people negotiated with the United States government to be let go back to their homelands in Arizona. And so miraculously, the government agreed to let the Navajo people go back to their traditional homelands in Arizona. And part of the treaty that was signed was that um, the Navajo agreed to have their children attend school, but, and the school would be um, built for every I forget, like every 20 children or every 30 children, the school would be built. But um, that never really, the government never really lived up to their treaty obligations. But um, part of the, the, what they did do was build uh, nine federal Indian boarding schools on the Navajo Reservation in the early 1900s. And Luke Boarding School was one of, was one of the federal Indian boarding schools. And both of my grandparents attended this school in the 1920s and um, probably a little bit into the 1930s. And they told me stories about um, their time at the old boarding school. And they didn't really tell me very much, but I, I remember um, my grandfather's story because it, it was really, uh, I think it was just a nice story. And he told me the story of how him and his friends um, used to go rabbit hunting around the school, and what he did was he he got a toy cap gun for Christmas at the Loop Boarding School, and um, he turned his cap cap gun into a real gun, and he him and his friends would go hunting for rabbits around the school, and then they would build a little campfire and cook their rabbits and eat them, and my. My um, mother told me that the reason why they were doing this is because they were starving at the old boarding school. So as I got older, I worked for the Navajo Nation Archaeology Department. And I realized that this, this site, the old boarding school, is an archaeological site. It's a huge site. Um, and then I also realized that there's nothing really written about this. There's no Navajo history about the school. Right. It's mentioned, like the name is mentioned in some books, but no one has ever documented and the history of it. But a lot of people know that that site is there. It's an important place because many, many children, you know, went to school there while the school was open from um, 1909 is when it first opened. And it closed in 1942. So 
And it closed, a lot of the it, families. It, it closed in 1942 to become something else. Yes, yes. It closed and it became a Japanese internment camp. It was called the Loop Isolation Center. Goodness. And that, that aspect of the history has been researched and published about um, the Park Service published uh, a book on Japanese internment camps. And so they do include the Loop Isolation Center, a few pages on the Loop Isolation Center, and also um, a, a, a movie that was recently released, like maybe five years ago. It's, it's called A Bitter Legacy. And I, I forget who the director is, but she's, of, um, she's Japanese. So she made this movie, and I, I haven't seen the movie yet, and I, I really want to see it. But um, I just haven't had been able to see that movie, and then so yeah, so that aspect of the Loop Boarding School has been researched, but the Navajo history of it has not. And so I really wanted to do this project because it's an important place in my community, and they want to know more about it too. And um, so this is my way of giving back to my community uh, information about the school. They want to know more, and yet, at the same time, you have encountered sometimes resistance to, to your research. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about that resistance to uh, archaeology. Um, I guess the, the, it's kind of hard to be an archaeologist uh, for, as, an, as a Navajo or Dineh person because Traditionally, we are taught to not disturb archaeological sites. We are just to leave them be. And um, it's mostly because if you disturb a place where a person has lived and died, you could um, make the spirits angry and they could make you sick. And not just you, they could make your family sick. So a lot of people don't think that archaeology is and a lot of Navajo people don't think archaeologists or archaeology is um, um, a field that that is necessary or that is um, something that they want to become, I guess. But but there are other Navajo people that that see archaeology as a way to protect sites right. and to to um, be able to document Navajo history and, and culture because, um, you know, these days the, 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 his, the language, the history, the culture is not being passed on to the younger generation as, it, as strongly as it was, you know, in, in the 20th century. And so um, some Navajo people believe that archaeology is a way for us to preserve our heritage and our culture and that we can, you know, be able to make our research available to the younger generations of Navajos. And, 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 and this would be a way for us to preserve our, our language, culture, and history. So I'm, I'm one of those, Na right, those you're, Navajo you're, people. Yeah, that, fight, fighting in a way, resisting mm -hmm. in a way, uh, preserving and in a way saving, saving a history that yeah. if you were not to write it, Davina, might, yeah. might not um, 
I don't know if it might not exist, but the traces would be yeah. with the passage of time would be harder and harder uh, to to, mm -hmm. to uncover. And you once wrote that there's yeah. a bleak history of American archaeology in the eyes of most native people, and you've spoken a little bit about yeah. that. But why mm -hmm. why bleak history? Well, it's bleak because, um, you know, for a very long time, archaeologists, you know, the field of anthropology is, is, is built upon colonization. Right. And, and for a very long time, um, archaeologists have researched the past or researched, you know, all sites in this country, are, the ancient sites are Native American sites. Right. And so when archaeologists would go and research places, they never asked permission from the tribes that live, you know, next to the site or from the tribes who consider these sites, you know, part of their ancestors. Um, they, the, the archaeologists, you know, did not ask permission. They did not um, work with tribes, basically contemporary tribes. They basically just ignored them for the most part. Um, most archaeologists, there may, you know, there may have been, been a few that were, I mean, there there were a few that didn't do that, but most of them did, and they did, they did, they would not listen to contemporary people's concerns about archaeological archaeological sites, nor would they invite them as um, um, to help them to research these sites. So, tribes you know, we're very concerned about the treatment of especially um, Native American burials that were being excavated and instead of um, reburied, uh, Native American burials, whether they're ancient or historic, you know, um, like recently, just recent burials, they would be sent to the museums and, you know, um, other institutions like universities. And so Native American human remains and burial objects and also sacred objects were just taken from tribes and without their consent. And so tribes were very, uh, for a very long time, have been protesting this ever since it's been happening. But finally, um, after um, the 60s with the civil rights movement happening and the American Indian movement that happened as well in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think uh, archaeologists and anthropologists could no longer ignore Native, contemporary Native American people and their concerns about um, their ancestors and um, human remains and burial items or sacred items in museums. So, um, especially with the passage of a law in 1990, the Native American grave. Protection and Repatriation Act, which requires all entities that have received federal funding to repatriate human remains, burial items, and objects of uh, cultural patrimony and sacred objects. So this law really, really changed, forcefully changed, yeah. because archaeologists and anthropologists had to adhere to the law now, and part of the law requires that they consult with contemporary Native Americans. You know, it's so, so interesting to me that you, you, in in writing this story uh, about the old loop boarding school, 
and following those traces and really in some way trying to as it were as you say decolonize archaeology and anthropology another one of your interests and in a, in a way um which goes together is your interest in the native american music and i was yeah. I, i was particular I, i i hear you reacting to that strongly i was particularly interested in knowing that now you're 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 djing and um i i'd, yeah. li I'd like you to talk a little bit about how 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 music works in the context of of uh, your world view and your research and uh, how music might be another way of of saving and resisting Yeah, um, well, I've always been a fan of Native American music. I, you know, have, of course, listened to it all my life. And um, my mother, she, she used to play um, Exit, which is the um, um, a band that was very popular in the 70s. And it, it was a, a rock and roll band. And they, um, the songs that they, they composed, they were really, uh, that they, they went along with the American Indian movement and just trying to be, bring recognition to contemporary Native people and our concerns um, with regards to how we're be, we were being treated and, you know, all of the treaties that were broken. So um, this music very much to me uh, as a child influenced me to like that kind of music, first of all, and then really listen, even though I was just a kid, to the messages in, embedded in the music, which were really resonated with me as a Native person, which, you know, was protection of, um, you know, the land, the animals, and the environment, um, caring for Mother Earth, and also, again, uh, addressing the fact that um, our treaties were broken and they, they needed to be um, upheld. You know the the what we signed those treaties um, agreeing to these different things the United States government um, asked of us, but yet they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. So, um, Davina, I guess I was wondering. I, think, I was wondering if if um, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Please go on. Oh, that's okay. No, go on, go on. It's 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 my mistake. Please. Yeah. So and anyway, I when I got to. IU, Indiana University, I was asked to be a volunteer DJ, and I, I never even, I never even thought, thought I could be a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so I, but my love of Native music, you know, I, I want to share Native music, because once I became a DJ, it just, I realized that there are Native First Nations, Indigenous people making music all across the Americas. And it's not just, um, you know, their traditional songs that they've been singing for, you know, hundreds of years, but they're composing music all the time. And I just didn't realize the rich, the rich depth of uh, Native musicians um, and also uh, Native Hawaiians, you know, they're, it's, and they make compose music in all genres. And it's just amazing what they do with their music. Uh, many powerful, powerful messages are, are, are embedded in a lot of the music about, again, um, fighting for Native American rights, fighting for, you know, indigenous 
protection of indigenous lands. And when I say indigenous lands, I mean, you know, these, these are the lands that people have been living on for thousands of years. Right. And so, you know, it, they can't just stand by and watch, you know, oil, oil companies come in and just wreck the land or mine, you know, mining. They have to do something. So a lot of them protest, um, take things to court. Um, they make music to spread the word. So, and, and then, of course, you just have the music that's fun to dance to. And then there's people composing music in their language because they want to preserve their language or pass the language on to the younger generation. So they're, you know, composing music in like uh, contemporary genres like hip hop or, you know, electronic dance music. So, you know, these are just so fascinating. I just, I just love. I can hear. I, I can hear it. I can, I can hear it in your <laughs> voice. And and Davina, could you, in closing, share with us um, some music that you you love? I'd I'd love to, uh, as as we bid farewell, to bid farewell with some music. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna play um, Alisa Harkin's song. I've been listening to her a lot lately, and I purchased her song. Um, Pony, it's called, and she's um, Cherokee, and and she um, she really works to preserve her uh, language through her um, music. And so, I just want to play this song for you. And um, um, again, I've been listening to it a lot. So this is called Pony. It's by Elisa Harkin. Thank you so much. Wonderful, how wonderful! I, 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 I look forward to 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 getting it myself and listening uh, listening to 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 her. Is there anybody else you suggest I listen to? I'm sure there's a long. Oh long yeah, list. you have a, a, a one a, of my. You have a whole, a yeah. whole class you teach and DJing. So tell 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 me, uh, educate me. Well, one of one of my favorite artists is. Uh, Ed Cabote, and he is um, from the Hopi of Arizona and also Santa Clara Pueblo. And he also um, has a band. So he does solo performances, and then he also does um, performances with his band, the Yodis. And he he's one of those singers that embeds so many powerful words into his music, especially about protection of water and the land and um, the environment and he he puts on a um, educational concert every year in January. It's called Rumble on the Mountain in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so he he um, 
for that for that uh, concert, he invites speakers um, from around uh, the northern Arizona to talk about different um, programs that are protecting water or the environment, and and then he um, also invites musicians to play music as well. So it's a whole day affair. How fantastic, Davina. It's been such a pleasure and so instructive. I've learned so much speaking to you. I really, really want to thank, oh, thank you. you. I want to thank you and good luck with your, your research and good luck in making your dissertation a bestseller. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. And to you. All the best to you. Take good care of yourself and your family. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.